0: So there is a Marvel movie with a Norse god named Loki. Now Loki tries to take over the world in this movie. And he runs into one of my favorite characters, the Incredible Hulk. And he decides he's going to fight the Incredible Hulk. And what does the Incredible Hulk do? He picks him up, he slaps him around a little while a bit, and then he leaves him down and he says, puny god, right? puny God. And he walks away because we all know that Loki is a puny God. Now we as Christians proclaim that we don't worship a puny God, that we have a big God. And we sing songs about how great our God is, or how amazing he is, how awesome he is. And we proclaim that God is amazing, awesome, and great. And we don't have a puny God. We have a great big God. And yet, so often the way we live our life is what I call puny God theology. So some, what are some of the ways that uh, that puny God, God theology is lived out? Well, how about when crisis hits? When your life seems like it's falling apart Do you trust God in the midst of all that? What about when the economy crumbles? We hit recession. You see your savings account dwindling, and you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Do you have anxiety about that? What about when the political party you don't like doesn't win? Our puny God theology thinks that God can't work with whatever government is running. Our puny God theology says that God can't work in certain economies. Our puny God theology says that God needs us to get his will done. And so we think we're doing God a favor when we do things, when we Share the gospel with someone. When we show up to church, we're doing God a favor because he needs us. That's puny God theology. The truth is, God can work in any government. He can work with any economy. He can work with any political party. And God doesn't need you to get his will done. It is a privilege that we get to be used by God. It's amazing that I get to come here and I get to study his word and I get to preach his word, but God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you either, but it is a privilege that you get to be used by God. So what contributes to this puny God theology? Well, I think there's a lot of things that contribute to the puny God theology, but part of it is oftentimes we don't look at special revelation and general revelation together. Now, these are two theological words. Theologians have kind of created this idea of special revelation. That is God's word, the Bible. That is how God communicated his principles to us. And then there's general revelation. And that is how God has revealed himself through nature, Romans 1.20 says that the invisible attributes of God can be clearly seen, namely, his eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen since the creation of the world in the things that are made. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, are you in awe of nature? Or are you in awe of God? The James Webb Telescope pictures were just released I don't know if anybody's into that kind of thing, but those were amazing pictures. When you look at the universe, are you in awe of nature, or are you in awe of God? Now, I think humans oftentimes swing too far one way or the other, and we live in a culture that worships nature. And so our tendency as Christians is to swing too far the other way, because people worship nature, and we know we're not supposed to worship nature, we ignore nature instead of being like Romans 1:20 and saying hey his invisible attributes his eternal power and his divine nature are being revealed to us through nature we ignore it and as we ignore nature we begin to develop a puny god theology now we could go the other way as well we could ignore special revelation ignore the bible and become worshipers of nature. And if we did that, we would also have a puny God theology. Because there would be this God who created, but doesn't care. Special revelation, general revelation, I should say. General revelation lets us know how big God is. Special revelation lets us know that this huge creator cares for you. General revelation is enough to convict us of sin, to know that there is this magnificent God and that we have rebelled against him. Special revelation lets us know how we can be saved, that although we have sinned against him, we have shaken our fist in rebellion against him and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. God has provided a way through his son, that he has paid the price on the cross with his son. Without special and general revelation, we will end up having puny God theology. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we open up to Psalm 104. We're continuing our series, The Summer in the Psalms, or as some people like to say, Summer in the Psalms. Uh, So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, no one knows who wrote it, and no one knows when it was written, but we do know that it was often recited during Yom Kippur and during the High Holy Days. It was a psalm that, they, that the Israelites used to look towards refreshing, to remind themselves of who God is and who they are, and to look into a new year with new eyes, saying, God has refreshed us. So that's what they used Psalm 104 for. So let's go ahead and dig in. Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. O oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment, The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell, They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they still away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work, And to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, wide and great, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There goes the ships, the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. All right. So, he begins this psalm, the psalmist begins with, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the same line that we dug into last week, and it, it means that it is a call for, inner, for our inner being, our innermost person, to speak words of excellence to God. So this is a call to praise God, is basically what it is. And then he's going to unfold why there's a call to praise God. He begins it with, O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. So this is going to set the theme for the rest of the psalm. So the rest of the, th- of the psalm is going to be about his splendor and his majesty. That's what this psalm is all about how God is full of splendor and majesty. So it begins with covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So often we see God depicted as a light. And some people might think as they read this that that's what this is a reference to, that God is just this single light. But that's not quite what it is. It's a picture of God wearing light as though a garment, like he's putting light on as a shirt. So now think about the sun. Can you outrun the light of the sun? How fast can you go? I remember being a kid thinking I could outrun light. My parents tried to prove me wrong, and they were very successful. You can't outrun light. That's just the light of the sun. Combine all of the lights that all the stars produce. How do you describe the indescribable? God's greatness, God's glory is so magnificent. How do you describe it? This psalmist describes it as though he is wearing the light. Because that's how great God is. And not only does he clothe himself in light, but he stretches out the heavens like a tent. Now we know from the technology we have that space continues to expand. That's a picture of God. Grabbing the ends of the universe and stretching them out. Once again, how do you describe the indescribable? This is so huge, it's beyond our imagination. And yet there God is, so big that he can stretch out space. He lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. So in uh, ancient times, Uh, It was very expensive and complicated to build a second story. And so only the most powerful and wealthy had second stories. And so this is kind of an illusion, or or he's kind of given a nod over to how powerful and how abundant in resources God has. That not only does he build a second story for himself, but he builds it on top of the waters. It was impossible. We now kind of have some technology where we can build a little bit on top of water. Uh, There is, uh, the UAE has been building cities on the water, like they actually go and they just keep dumping sand out in the ocean so that they can build up. But in those days, it was thought of as impossible to build on top of water. And not only can God build on top of water, but he can build a second story on top of water. So this is showing, once again, how incredible God is, that things that we can't even fathom to do, God just doesn't. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers, a flaming fire. So this part just describes how he can control what we cannot control. He can control what we cannot control. So the wind, the clouds, the fire. One of the jokes in Dhoni Park is if you don't own a trampoline, just wait for Spring. One will blow into your backyard. (laughs) We'd like to think we can control wind. And maybe we can put up some barriers that will help us reduce the damage the wind can do. But God can control the wind. How about the clouds? What an amazing thunderstorm we had yesterday, right? I love to watch the thunderstorms build. We can't control the clouds. And yet, God can. And then finally, the fire. We learned so quickly this spring how uncontrollable fire is. How easily we think we can control it and how easily it can get out of control and burn more than we could ever hope for. And it will leave a path of destruction. And yet God can control what we cannot. That's what that whole section is about. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. So this this one little verse is describing the laws of nature that exist because of God. All of the laws of nature exist because of God. So science is the study of the natural world. So all of science exists because God created in such a way that we could discover the laws of nature. And not only that, but God sets the earth on the foundation, and he builds the universe in such a way that life can actually exist. So Robin Collins, PhD in physics, has this amazing quote, everything needed for life is balanced on a razor's edge. Everything needed for life is balanced on a razor's edge. So what he's getting at here, and if you read his book, he goes into a great detail about how everything that we need for life to exist is very precise. That's what he means by balanced on a razor's edge. If it moves, if gravity, if the force of gravity moves one way or one number in either direction, life cannot exist. If the earth is set closer to the sun or further from the sun, life cannot exist. So there are all these principles that govern if life can exist or not, and all of them are exactly precise for life to exist. He goes on, the, con- uh, the coincidences are far too fantastic to attribute to mere chance, or to claim that it needs no explanation. There needs, to, what he's saying is there needs to be some kind of explanation. How can this happen without explanation? So he's, he's trying to discover how this can happen. The dials are set too precisely to have been a random accident. And then he goes on to explain that it's kind of like this. uh, the, The chances of life occurring naturally are like if you were on the moon and you took a dart and on the earth there was a single atom. So microscopic, something that we can't see with the naked eye. There was a single atom with a bullseye on it. And you stood on the moon and you threw your dart And you are able to hit the bullseye on the earth. That's the chances of this happening naturally. So for Robin Collins, it's just too much. It's just just too big of a coincidence. There has to be a maker behind it all. Now, you've got someone like Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist. And he would say, yes, but the possibility is there. But the possibility is there. And I might say, you know what? Technically, he is correct. The possibility is there. I could stand from the moon, and I could throw a dart at the earth and hit the atom that has the bullseye. The possibility is there. But it's so low that it makes me have to question whether that's a feasible possibility. I heard another pastor put it this way, that it's like if you were to sit down to play cards with somebody, and the dealer 20 times in a row dealt himself all aces. Now, is that a possibility? Yeah, that's a possibility. But if you were playing against him, how many times would he have to deal himself all aces for you to say, whoa, buddy, something's up here. I don't trust you anymore. You would clearly see that there is something greater going on than just the pure chance that he dealt himself all aces 20 times in a row. And that's what the fine-tuning argument is. The apologetic for Christianity and for God in general, that there has to be a God because the world is so fine-tuned for life that it can't just be an accident. And what I believe this reveals is that, once again, uh, atheists don't believe in God, not out of confusion, but out of rebellion. Richard Dawkins knows the fine-tuned argument. He's very familiar with the fine-tuned argument, and he sees that the possibility is almost Slim to none So the possibility of a creator is far greater just like if I was playing cards with you the chances of you getting the, of dealing those aces to yourself are slim to none but the chances of you cheating far greater And so Richard Dawkins knows that and what does he do? he says, well that's And that's not probable for there to be a creator. And he says that because there's rebellion in his heart. He's not confused about the argument. He knows the possibilities. Disbelief is always a result of rebellion, not confusion. And we see that clearly with this fine-tuning argument, that God has made the world in just such a way to produce life that the possibility that it's anything but God is so small that we might as well call it impossible. 6 through 9, then get into the flood. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So you covered it, meaning the earth. He covered the uh, the earth with uh, the deep. That's a reference to water as with a garment, right? So... Uh, the, he, this is a reference to the global flood. Now, some people would say that Mount Everest is 29,000 feet. There's no way we have enough water in this world to cover Mount Everest, and that is true. But we would say that before the flood, there were no mountains, and we know uh, that if there, were no, there are no mountains, that the earth is uh, full of plains, that we actually have enough water to cover the earth up to 8,000 feet. So we don't have it now, but that's because the landscape has changed. So this is saying that this is a reference to the global flood. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. So this is saying that, hey, when God, God flooded the earth, and when it was time to recede the floodwaters, God made it happen. That's what he's getting at. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Now, this is what the the psalmist is saying is that the mountains were created through the flood. That's exactly what uh, creation scientists would say. They'd say that that mountains were created during the flood, and that's what the psalmist would affirm right here, that during the flood, it was a violent, catastrophic event where the tectonic plates were moved and smashed into one another, and that's what created the mountains. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So after causing the the floodwaters to recede, then he sets this boundary and he says, no longer will I flood the entire world again. The whole point about that, we could get into a lot of different theological aspects of this section, but the whole point is that even in the midst of earth-shaping catastrophe, God still has rule. God is still sovereign over the entire world. That's the point that he's getting at with the reference to the flood. He continues on. Uh, Verses 9 through 18 are what's called a chiasm. So uh, we've got a slide here. For those of you who are not familiar with a chiasm, a chiasm is where the first and the last sections match, and then the second and the second to last, third, third to last. And it all comes down to the center point. And the point of a chiasm is that the center point is the most important. And so we see here that 10 and 11 match 18, 12 and 13 match 16 and 17, and it's all drawing to the center point, which is 14 and 15, and this is the point that the psalmist is going to make. So we see in 10, you make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So, you might think this is a a section about God's rule over the wild things, and oftentimes we don't think of donkeys as wild things. Uh, But for the ancient audience, a donkey was thought of as untamable. There's a reason why uh, a donkey is kind of an insult to people, because donkeys were stubborn. Even the lions and the bears could be scared away, but you couldn't even scare a donkey. The donkey was set in their way and was just going to do whatever the donkey wanted to do. And so what he's getting at here is the donkey, even the donkey, that man can't tame, God still controls. And he cares for the donkey and the wild things. That matches up with 18. The mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. The high mountains here is a reference to, like, timber Timberline is usually around 11,000 feet. It's where the trees don't grow anymore. You can think of the Timberline, above the Timberline, as an incredibly wild area. So the whole point of these is that God cares for the wild things. It's part of his creation. The things that we can't tame, God still has his eyes on. Then 12 and 13 match with 16 and 17. Beside them, the birds of the heavens, dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. So this is kind of a reference. This is a painting a picture of the earth being God's garden and God being this master gardener who skillfully takes care of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a gardener. I know it's probably some of you are really good at gardening. I say, my excuse these days is that I live in Flagstaff, and it's pointless to garden here. Uh, but if I'm being honest, I've just never been a gardener. I've been able to kill plants very well. Uh, so if a plant comes into my custody, uh, it will die, and my wife is the same way. So if you wanted to give us a plant, please don't, unless you want that plant to die. We're just bad at gardening. But this paints a picture of God as this master gardener, someone who knows how to take care of the world. I've known some gardeners that were just so good at their craft. They would study, and they would know exactly what they're doing. And yet God, in all of his glory and splendor, does it even better with the entire world. And it's drawing all to this point, 14 and 15. You cause, the gra- gr- Sorry, you cause the grass to grow, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So all of this is coming down to the central point that God cares For his creation. And God cares so deeply for his creation. That he brings good things. Every good thing in your life. Is caused by God. So here he just lists off a couple things. Food. God cares deeply enough for you. That that he has provided a way that we can enjoy delicious food. Food and not just food but he also talks about wine. Now in those days a lot of water was bad and would make you sick and so one of the ways that they would purify water was through wine. Oil to make his face shine. This is basically lotion. You know, they also people in antiquity dealt with dry skin just like we do. But oil to put oil on your face would help with your dry skin and would moisturize and bread to strengthen man's heart. Even in antiquity, they loved delicious bread, and it would feed them. The whole point is that God loves man. He cares for his creator. 19 through 20, the psalmist will declare uh, that that God made the rhythms and the cycles for our life. So he made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. So in Hebrew culture, or there is the Hebrew calendar, and it is based on lunar cycles. So it's not based upon, you know, what we have in our, uh, in our calendar. It is based upon this, the moon. And so everything is based on the moon. And so what they're doing is watching the moon, and the moon lets them know the months, and then also the seasons that occur along with those months. So the whole point that he's making here is that God has given us seasons. God has given us cycles. God has given us rhythms to our life. And then the sun knows it's time for setting. So we, we, the moon gives them the yearly cycle, the yearly rhythm. The sun gives the daily cycle. That there's a time to eat, a time to work, a time to sleep. That's what the reference is here: both a seasonal, yearly cycle, and then a daily cycle or daily rhythm that we get into. Twenty to twenty-three just describes this cycle a little bit more in detail. You make the darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking food, their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. And so it's just saying that all of creation, not just man, but all of creation, participates in the rhythms and the cycles that God has created. So we've seen so far that the first section is about how great our God, our infinite God is. The second section is about uh, even the earth shaping chaos. He still rules. The third section, we see God as this great gardener. The fourth section is that the the cycles and rhythms were created by God. This next section then will be about how God delights in his creation. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works, in his or in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So God created and thus he owns everything in this world. Now, we are an individualistic society, we are an individualistic culture, and we like to think we own stuff. We worked hard for those things, right? Everything I have, I worked hard for. You better believe I own it. And yet here, it makes it very clear that everything we have is actually God's, and he has given it to us to manage for him. We are called to be good stewards of all that God has given us. That includes this earth. We are to be good stewards of the earth. We are to be good stewards of the forests. We are to be good stewards of our household, good managers of our wealth. All of it is actually God's. None of it is yours. And one day God will call you to account for how you have managed what he has given you. He continues, Here is the sea, great and wide. So now he's given an example of all that God owns. The sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There goes the ships, the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. So for the ancient audience, the sea was vast and mysterious. So ships would sail across the sea, and they knew what was on top of the sea, and they might look at weather patterns, and they were able to figure out some weather patterns, but they had no clue what was under the sea. And that mysterious... Mystery was scary to them. It's still a little mysterious to us. There are places in the ocean that we have yet to discover. There are parts of the ocean that we still haven't seen. We are still discovering different creatures in the ocean. Now, I remember once when I was in Kauai, and I was snorkeling along the reef, and it felt safe, and I felt good, and I would every now and then look at the edge of the reef, where it's the drop-off, and I, re- I thought of Finding Nemo while I was doing it, because, you know, in Finding Nemo, he's not supposed to swim off the reef, but there's that boat that, he's supposed to, that he was dared to go touch. Well, I thought about that a little bit, and I was looking at the edge of the reef, and I thought, man, how, I just want to see what it's like. And the reef is a steep drop. It's like you're staying at the edge of the Grand Canyon, but at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you can look down, and you can kind of make some things out but you also know if you fall, you're gonna die. The edge of the reef isn't like that. You know you, that, you'll, that you'll float. And I thought, I'll float. So I started to swim out. And it didn't take me very long to go right back to the reef, because you know you can't its going down forever and you can't see what's down there. But you just have a picture in your mind of this great big sea monster looking back at you, ready to eat you. And even if it's not a sea monster, it's got to be a shark or something, right? I just know there's something looking up at me, ready to eat me. And that's the fear that, this, that the ancient audience had of the, of the sea. If you don't understand it, go to a reef and try to swim off the, the cliff there. It is a scary feeling. So that's the whole point, is that it's, it's vast and mysterious, and yet it is God's fish tank. He created this for his own delight, for his own enjoyment. And he enjoys all the sea creatures. All those ones that are just crazy and scary to us, he enjoys. And not just sea creatures, but all kinds of creatures. My boys have been really into uh, a show where this guy goes around and finds things to sting himself with. It's, It's kind of a crazy show. I actually have been kind of hooked on it as well. But he's like finding hornets and stinging himself. But he gets these nasty creatures. Like centipedes. I think centipedes are the worst. Uh, anybody else with me on that? Like centipedes are the, just the worst creatures on earth, I think. God still delights in them. God delights in his creatures that he has created. That's the point. And then there goes the ships and Leviathan. Le- Leviathan was probably a giant dinosaur. And this giant dinosaur that survived through the flood uh, most likely died off. But it became this big myth. And, and then it eventually turned into, like, a myth that people created. So a lot of people just think the Leviathan is a myth, but it's really a giant dinosaur. And in Job, he talks about the Leviathan that God plays with. So we almost get this picture that this giant dinosaur is God's pet. When I think about that, I think about my daughter, who loves animals, and we have some cats, and she runs, she's two years old, and she runs over and she scoops up the cat. And like, she's, she thinks she's cuddling it and they're just in love, right? But this cat is like dangling in all sorts of awkward positions and does a really great job of tolerating her. But you can see he's like, please get me away from this toddler. And think about how we handle cats and other animals and pets. But I would never want a dinosaur, a giant dinosaur, as a pet. And that's God. So small is this giant dinosaur that he could just, you know, throw it over on its back and tickle its tummy. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, They die. And return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. This section right here is all about God's sovereignty over life. Any life is sustained because of God. Once again, in our independence, we become arrogant and we think that we don't need God to survive. But the very reason you can breathe is because God has sustained you. All life exists because God has sustained it. Conversely then, all death, though not caused by God, is because God has decided it is time to no longer sustain that life. This is a great mystery to us. I want to make clear that it's not God who causes the death, but it is God who decides that it is time to no longer sustain life. So we all know someone who the doctors declare it is a mystery why they are alive. They should have died. There's no possible explanation why they're still alive. And I think the only real possible explanation is that God sustained them. Now, why does God choose to sustain some and not others is a mystery. And I don't think we're ever, on this side, I don't think we're ever going to figure out that mystery. But what we can know is that life is sustained by God and that we can trust God in death. Other than that, we can't figure out why God sustains some but doesn't others. He continues, this last section, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So we see that God delights in Creation. God takes joy in you. Think about that for a second. We've just described this God that is enormous, that stretches out space, this God that could, can use catastrophe to shape the earth, this God that wears light as a garment, this God that has Leviathan, a giant dinosaur, as his own pet, and yet this God. Takes joy in you. This God loves you with an unfathomable love that you can never quite understand. He looks to the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. This is just a last reminder of how great God is, how huge He is, how big our God is, that the earth trembles at His sight. And then He gives us the results of God's greatness. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. So we see the first result is that it should be praise. As we look around at God's creation, as we see general revelation, and we combine that with specific revelation about how great God is, and yet how great he is, and how much he still loves you, it should produce praise and worship in our life. The other side of that is let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. So contrasted with those who see the greatness of God in creation and recognize how great our God is because of creation are those who look around and they see the evidence and they still refuse to see his invisible attribute. They see the evidence, and yet they refuse to see his eternal power and his divine nature. And in the end, they will be separated from him. In the end, they will no longer have the opportunity to repent and to enjoy this God who is so great and his love for you. He finishes with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is one last plea. Given the evidence, given all that we see around us, given that this God is so great, and yet he controls everything from the universe to the microscopic particles of an atom, we should praise and worship him. So do you believe in a puny God? A God who needs you to get things done. Or when you look around, do you see his invisible attributes, his eternal power displayed in the new pictures from the James Webb telescope, displayed in microscopic particles in the atom? Do you see his eternal power displayed in wildfires and huge mountains? and thunderstorms and centipedes. His eternal power and divine nature are displayed throughout the universe. And this should spur us on to have a big picture of God and to worship our God who has eternal power and divine nature. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for specific revelation where you revealed to us your principles. You revealed to us your love for us. You revealed to us that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you revealed your Savior to us who died on the cross so that we may live. And we also thank you for general revelation, how you have revealed your eternal power and divine nature throughout the creation that we can look around and see how great you are because your creation is screaming it to us. And we pray that you would help us to appreciate what an amazing universe you have created. In your name we pray.